Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast, October 22nd, the Hellraiser series. Yep, so hello everyone, welcome back. We're going to be talking about the Hellraiser movies today. Uh, I'm going to be going through all of them. Uh, bear in mind, most of my time is going to be devoted to both the original and Hellbound, which was the first sequel, as well as the David Bruckner one that came out uh, just this year. So, I guess starting off, we're going to go with Hellraiser. It is the original Hellraiser. came out in uh, 1987. It's based off the novella The Hellbound Heart, which was written by Clive Barker, who also wrote and directed this movie. The It has some minor changes, although it follows the plot fairly well. Um... For example, the character of Larry Cotton, his name was originally Rory in the novella. Uh, Kirsty Cotton is in was just Kirsty in the in the novella. She was not she was not Larry's daughter. She was a coworker and a friend that had a that had a you know romantic interest in him. Uh, now in the movie, she is a daughter from a previous marriage. And what the basic premise of this is, is that um, Larry, Kirsty, and Larry's new wife, Kirsty's stepmother, Julia, they move into this house in England that was owned by, uh, you know, uh, Cotton's late grandmother. The film doesn't open with them. The film opens with Frank Cotton, uh, Larry's brother, who is a sort of really self-indulgent, like, hedonistic uh, guy who also has this sort of life of crime that he's he's been uh, conducting. He's kind of like one of those, you know, suave asshole kind of characters from what I can gather. So the film opens with Frank sitting down at this table with a merchant in Morocco. Uh, It was Dusseldorf, Germany in the novella originally, but they changed it to Morocco. I guess just because it would help with the sort of... When you're making things for a primarily, you know, American and European audience, putting something like that in, like, the Middle East, for example, would or North Africa would kind of help give it a sense of otherness, I guess, would help make it a little more mysterious and scary. So he obtains the box, hands over a shit ton of cash for it. He returns home, and in this dark room where he's surrounded by candles, he opens the iconic puzzle box. And we just see him get stuck with all these, like, hooks on chains. And it cuts to this weird dimension where there's just bits of his skin hanging everywhere. And someone, we just see hands, but they piece his face back together. So... He disappears from the house. Um, Larry and his side of the family move in. And at some point during the moving in, Larry cuts his hand on the head of a nail that's been sticking out. The blood drips onto the floor in the attic, and Frank is sort of revived in a way. But he's in this weakened state where he's just kind of just kind of flopping around he's got like he looks emaciated he has no skin 
He's got like holes in his body and all that. And this is where we find out that Julia and Frank actually had an affair before Julia and Larry got married. And, you know, she still kind of has the hots for him, and she was, like, wondering where he went. And Julia discovers this, and he convinces her to help him regain his form. And the problem is that the way to do that is, well, more blood. So what she's been doing is she's been kind of, like, going out when Larry's not home, uh, seducing guys, and then bringing them back to the... Um, back to the house and then they kill them and then Frank just kind of assimilates them to build his strength back up again we find out that what had happened to him was that the box gave entryway to hell for lack of a better term the Cenobites as they're called are a race of beings that are obsessed with extreme sensation. As Frank said, pain and pleasure indivisible. They're, they were all originally human, as we find out in the sequel, in Hellbound, but they've been sort of corrupted and mutated to the point where they only care about sensation, really. And they're so far gone that they inflict is that they inflict the sensation on mortals who summon them. Um, and it's so alien to the human body that's living that they can't really... that there's basically no difference between the pleasure and pain as far as the Cenobites are concerned. And they're all, like, mutilated in some way, uh, aside from Pinhead, which we'll get into him. But, you know, there's one who has this sort of, like, halo sticking through her face. She's got, like, her throat's opened up. There's one that has his eyes sewn shut. There's one called the Chatterer, where his, he's basically just got this rictus grin all the time. And his, the skin on his face is pulled back, so his teeth are always exposed. And, well, this kind of gets in to something that was common... Or at least it's a way you can read Barker's work because, you know, he said the inspiration was that he kind of got the idea of using the aesthetic of, like, sadomasochism, like the BDSM subculture for a horror series because he actually worked as, like, a bouncer at a club, as a, at an S&M club for a while, from what I've read. And there is definitely that whole... It's not sexual violence, but there's a sexualized aesthetic to a lot of the horror. Um, especially if you're, especially if we're talking about things like bondage, you know, all the Cenobites have outfits that look like, you know, just blacked out leather and a lot of spikes on it. And, you know, there's the whole imagery of like chains and hooks and I mean, if you want to dig a little deeper, you can also address the fact that uh, what a Cenobite actually means in the original meaning of the word was that it was a type of, uh, it was a member of a monastic community. Not necessarily a monk, but like someone who lived and worked in and around a monastery. So there's, I mean, 
I don't want to sound like Christopher Hitchens there, but you can <laughs> but you can also read it in a sense of showing that there is an element of what you know people outside uh, people who aren't sadomasochists think of what s and m usually is is that there's an element of that in religion, at least you know big organized religion. The idea that you should simultaneously love and fear someone. I mean, that is basically just what the Bible is, let's be honest. So, I feel like the idea of calling these, you know, hellish creatures Cenobites is not particularly, you know, it's not much of a reach, to be honest. Especially if, you know, like Barker, you are not heterosexual. <laughs> but... I'll get into that just at the very end it's at the very end of the episode. Uh so about so so surprising as kind of unsurprising for a lot of eighties horror movies, um Hellraiser got really polarized reviews when it came out, but it's obviously become a cult classic. It's gotten reevaluated. Um it's also notable because it takes itself so damn seriously. And, and I mean, it doesn't like fall flat or anything, but it's definitely an oddball because it's so serious at a time when, you know, between some of the Friday the 13th sequels, um, some of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, some of like Child's Play had come out. And it was an unusual thing for it to be so bleak and serious at a time period when a lot of really, really popular horror movies were starting to skew comedic. But a year later, it got a sequel, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. It takes place, um, I think it's right after, or at least within a, a decent, at least a, not a terribly big span of time the first movie but a year after the first movie it was released after the events of the first movie Kirsty is locked in an asylum because as you might imagine no one believes her story about these sort of demon creatures and bondage gear that showed up and led to all the deaths that occurred in that house so she's in there and she gets put under the care of Dr. Chenard who is obsessed with you know, stories about these entities. He he has some idea that the Cenobites are actually a thing, but he doesn't really know. So he takes charge of he takes charge of Kirsty's care, less so because he actually is concerned for her well being and more because he wants to use her to summon the Cenobites for himself. Julia at some point also gets revived so that she can get her revenge on Kirsty and, you know, herself escape the Cenobites. So, kind of in the way that Frank was revived and, um, you know, persuaded Julia. Julia gets revived and she's persuading Dr. Chenard, basically. And there's this girl, Tiffany, who's also at the asylum, who's kind of has this odd fixation on uh, puzzles. And... She and Kirsty team up to, you know, 
work through the uh, last act of the movie where we actually get an image of what hell sort of looks like for the Cenobites, but we it's all wonderfully done. It's got these really good effects. It's got cool matte paintings. There's the effect of Leviathan, although some of it's definitely very dated, and there's a lot of scenes where it's, you know, obviously just like sped up photography. It's also where we get, like, we knew, and this is where we figure out that the Cenobites were actually once human, or at least, or at least most of them were, because there's this picture, and Christy picks it up, and it's this guy in, like, a World War One British Army outfit, and if you look at the face carefully enough, you'll, if it'll look familiar, and it's Pinhead. Pinhead, or the Hell Priest as he was called at some points in the actual novella, or just the lead Cenobite, because Pinhead was actually something that both the um, effects artists and the fans later ascribed to that character. He's never actually called that in the book. The face, aside from like the nails and everything, looks really similar to Pinhead. And... Pinhead seems to get the slightest bit of recollection of his previous life, because I get the feeling that turning into a Cenobite kind of erases the idea that you were once human once you do it, or at least that's kind of what it gave me the impression of. Because, like, you know, Kirsty tries to tell him that they were once human, and they're like, bullshit. But then she shows the picture, and Pinhead's kind of like, wait a minute. So, yeah, Hell Hellbound is also... I'd say it's fairly on par with the original. It's definitely kind of up the stakes and the effects quality is a little better. It's just that there's less of a coherent through line than the original. It's a bit more just the surreal imagery. But, you know, when something gets this popular, it's bound to have sequels because <laughs> this was the 80s and 90s. And, you know, you hear about, like, the Halloween sequels or the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels or the Friday the 13th. I don't see a lot of people talking about the Hellraiser sequels a lot of the time just because, like, hardly any of them got theatrical releases. But the first sequel post-Hellbound was Hellraiser 3. Hell on Earth, and this is where we kind of we're gonna breeze through these a little bit faster. So after the events of Hellbound, after the confrontation with a new Cenobite, because we actually see one getting made, uh, Pinhead is imprisoned in a statue, and there he seeks to regain some of his power. And after converting several local youths into new Cenobites, he gets loose. He goes on a rampage, and he's opposed by this local reporter and his resurgent, like, good half. We actually get to see the World War I soldier who would eventually become Pinhead. We kind of see his personality come to the fore and try to actually oppose, like, you know, the Cenobite half. Uh, Parker was, sorry, not Parker, Barker. Clive Barker wasn't involved until post-production. Uh, director was Anthony Hickox, who also did the uh, movie Waxwork. 
And this was actually also the first movie filmed outside of the United Kingdom. Um, if you want to, if you want to dig a little deeper and give it some credit, you could also argue that it has themes of like war. Because I think an aspect that they were trying to communicate was that the horrors of World War One kind of traumatized the man that would later become Pinhead. And in trying to escape that, he tried to seek, you know, a corresponding amount of, like, pleasure to go with his, oh, to, like, cancel out the pain he was feeling, both physically and mentally. And that's how he ended up becoming a Cenobite, because he found the puzzle box and, like everyone else, opened it without knowing what would be on the other side of it. So there's an interesting idea there. Next up, we have Hellraiser Bloodlines, originally directed by Kevin Yeager, but he had to leave, so it was taken over by Joe Chappelle, who also did uh, you know, Halloween 6. It's the, it's the last chronologically as well, without taking the new one into account. I don't know if the new one was supposed to, like, you know, be a retcon for the whole thing. Um, but it takes place aboard this, like, space station in the near future. And a scientist on board solves the lament configuration, which is the the actual, like, puzzle box. It's also called the Lemmershand in um, the novella, but here we get why. We find out that a scientist, the distant ancestor was an aristocrat and a was an aristocrat and a toy maker named Le Marchand, because he lived in France, and Merchant is just the anglicized version of that. He actually commissioned the box in the first place, not knowing that this was involved with some kind of weird cult shit going on. And an ancestor in between those two points, you know, the invention and the present day. Um, tried to actually create this building that would sort of act as a big sort of anti-lament configuration. Basically, the idea was that making a corresponding opposite would, you know, close all the gates so that the Cenobites couldn't, like, enter the, enter the mortal world anymore. It's interesting just because of the aspect of sci-fi in it, but it just feels like a bit of a gimmick at points. There is a nice cameo from Ashley Lawrence, who played Kirstie in the first two movies. All right, next up we've got two that I actually would recommend, just because they're kind of interesting, or at least had some interesting ideas. Uh, first up, we have Hellraiser Inferno. This is the first to be direct-to-video. Directed by Scott Derrickson, who most recently did... The Black Phone, which is a great movie, by the way. He also did the first Doctor Strange movie. Uh, there's a detective in Denver who, you know, he's one of those, like, self-destructive um, cop figures you see a lot in, like, you know, noir films. And it's, you know, he occasionally takes some of the drugs that he confiscates. He's got kind of a fraught relationship with his family. And his personal life begins to unravel even further when there's a murder investigation that he's supposed to be a part of. Striking down a serial killer that the uh, media has dubbed the Engineer. And he discovers the box, and from there on he 
suffers from a lot of bizarre hallucinations. Um, especially involving this, like, child that keeps showing up for up and disappearing for no apparent reason. Um, a theme here, if Bloodlines... No, not Bloodlines. If, if Hell on Earth had, like, the horrors of war as a theme, this is his self-destructive behavior. Our main character. Um... Honestly, this and the next one both have really cool twists at the end, but I won't go any further. But, you know, if you're going to pick any of the Hellraiser sequels uh, in between Hellbound and the new one to watch, I would recommend these two over basically any of the others, just because they're the ones that are, I think, the most interesting. Next up, we have Hellseeker. We have a return from Christy Cotton from the first two movies. We've got Dean Winters playing her husband, Trevor, who survives a car accident that apparently killed Kirsty, although her body was never found. And funnily enough, Dean Winters, funnily enough, the idea of Dean Winters playing a guy who crashes the car, he's the guy that plays, uh, he does the mayhem commercials for Allstate. <laughs> I'd say in a way it's a little like Inferno as well, but from a different angle. Um... Like, Trevor just has a number of bizarre hallucinations that make a lot of people around him question his sanity, and there's people close to him that get killed, so he's kind of a suspect in that. Uh, again, like Inferno, it's got a cool twist at the end, but I won't spoil it by going any further. Uh, as I said, aside from the first two and the remake, I would definitely recommend Inferno and Hellseeker if you're going to pick any sequels to watch. Next up, we have Hellraiser Deader. Yeah, it's just dead or like more dead. It's it's weird. But we follow a reporter named Amy Klein as she visits Bucharest in Romania after her bureau receives a videotape of a violent ritualistic murder and more concerningly seems to depict the resurrection of said victim. Arriving, she encounters a cult called the Debtors and their leader, Winter Lemershend. So we get the Lemershend in there. Not really much to say about this one. Um, it's kind of... It's pretty generic, honestly. It's one of those... This is what I feel like a lot of people think of with the Hellraiser sequels. Pinhead just kind of shows up. He doesn't really need to be there. So it it's definitely far more generic than a lot of the than either Inferno or Hellseeker, or honestly, even more than Bloodlines. So, moving on. This one was a little interesting, is Hellraiser Hellworld. So, in... So this one was actually shot simultaneously with Detter in Romania. Hellworld is also the last to feature Doug Bradley as Pinhead. Um, essentially, there's a young man named Adam who becomes far too immersed in this online game called Hellworld, which, weirdly enough, is kind of based off the stories of the Cenobites in-universe. Eventually, it kind of works his mind to the point where he commits suicide for some reason, and his five friends kind of blame themselves for his death, not trying to stop him. But they receive an invite through the game and attend a Hellworld party, 
at this big mansion, but the host, Lance Henrik, is played by Lance Henriksen, is in league with the Cenobites, and he's killing them for, again, a reason I won't spoil if you do want to watch it. It does have to do with Adam, though. And by a long shot, my least favorite, we have Hellraiser Revelations. The families of two teenagers who ran away and disappeared after a few days of drunken partying in Mexico. When the Mexican authorities retrieve and return their belongings, one of them, uh, his girlfriend, actually accidentally activates the puzzle box. Okay, I get the budgets on these things are not big, but Jesus Christ. Look at the, just look up like stills from the production value. It looks like if you made a porno parody of Hellraiser, this is what the production values would would be. And I think the most polite I think the nicest thing that either Doug Bradley or Clive Barker ever said about, about these things was just not issuing an official comment on it. Although Barker did basically say that he took issue with them saying from the mind of Clive Barker, and he said, it's not from my mind. I have nothing to do with this. So that should tell you something about the quality of it. Uh, And finally, before the new one, we have Hellraiser Judgment. Actually, honestly, I'm going to say with Revelations, it's also just a lot of it is just we don't get any real characterization other than the fact that those two guys, one of them had, one of them, like his dad had an affair with the other's mom or something like that, and they were kind of alienated from their respective families, so they just kind of ran away. It's it's a lot of just like stereotypical teen angst bullshit is motivating them. So now we're actually going to move on to Hellraiser Judgment. This one again... Interesting concept, kind of middling execution, though. It's a significant step up from Revelations. But there's a trio of detectives investigating a series of murders based on the Ten Commandments, and it's carried out by a serial killer dubbed the Preceptor. A preceptor is just like a fancy way of saying, like, teacher or instructor. Pinhead actually has something approaching an arc. Like, he's not just there to be there. Um... The director originally wanted it to be a standalone thing, not have it be a Hellraiser. Uh, Got reworked into Hellraiser, but this was like 2017, and Dimension Films, like, you know, this was right when the whole thing with Harvey Weinstein blew up, so the studio shelved it because they were on damage control right now. One of the more, like, interesting things about this was that the writers didn't really base it off of Barker anyway, but when they reworked it into Hellraiser, they, you know, also read his books of the others of his books of blood, um, the Scarlet Gospels. So they wanted it to at least feel like something Barker would have written. And part of that is a bit of world building because we get actually an angel entering the scene because you know we talk about hell, where's heaven in this? And there's also a new faction in hell. Uh, Basically, the Cenobites are part of the Order of the Gash, as they're called it, and there's another one called the Stygian Inquisition, where the Order of the Gash is concerned with, you know, torture and, you know, the extremes of pleasure and pain and sensation. The Stygian Inquisition is more your classic, you know, collecting people, examining their sinfulness, and then punishing them appropriately for it. 
So I did like the like added bit of world building there. But it it sort of like it has this sort of like washed out grungy industrial look and it just there are points where it just looks kind of gross to watch. It's only a couple scenes, but it it is an interesting it is a somewhat interesting movie, at least compared to some of the other sequels that came before it. But finally, I actually get to close out on a somewhat positive note, because we're talking about Hellraiser 2022. Directed by David Bruckner, who did The Night House and the, uh, more famously, the Amateur Night segment from the first VHS movie. Um, I'm a little unclear as to how this fits in with the rest. I don't know if this is a straight remake or like a hard reboot, if any of the other movies are still canon at this point. But... The movie is a new story, but tonally, it's the most in line with Barker's work since anything after Hellbound. There's this woman struggling with addiction. She's fearful of a relapse. Um, and she runs across the puzzle box by accident. Well, okay, not so much like accident. She's dating this guy, and he works as a sort of like security guard. And they break into this warehouse and steal something, hoping to get some money for it. And that's where the puzzle box is encountered. Um, After having an argument with her brother, because, you know, he's overly concerned with her relapsing or what this boyfriend of hers is thinking. So he kicks her out of the apartment. Uh, She goes to, like, sulk in the nearby park and she accidentally summons the Cenobites and when her brother comes to check on her he ends up vanishing as a result of the box being activated so there's the theme so yeah you know there's themes of like grief and guilt and depression and um just the dangers of indulgence. I don't know. It's really hard to like describe this movie without really just describing what happens in it. I mean, I mean, honestly, go watch it. It's on Hulu if you have it. But it's hard to really explain why I like it because I mean, you get this um, kind of eccentric billionaire, for example, who wants the box for his own purposes. He actually has it in the beginning. So him, so him wanting to get the box back is a big part of what drives the plot later in the movie. But aside from that, on a technical level, like the music is amazing. The lighting is really good, although the second half is a little dimly lit through most of it, it could have stood to be a little bit brighter. I like the mood it evokes, but there are points where it's just hard to see what's going on. But, yeah, that's the Hellraiser franchise. Uh, Like I said, I can definitely recommend uh, the first two movies and the remake. As far as the sequels go, I will recommend Inferno, Hellseeker, and Judgment. Just because they're not good, but they have some interesting concepts that I think could have made for a great movie if they just had like more to work with or if they had 
some time to like iron out um, the production and everything. So that's going to be it for today. Tomorrow we are going to be talking about the Scream movies. And then after that, we're on the 24th, we are going to to discuss sci-fi and cosmic horror, so Event Horizon, The Endless, Alien, Annihilation, The Void, Color Out of Space. And then on October 25th, we are going to be talking about the Fear Street trilogy. So thanks for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. <laughs>